You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, I'm Lisa Birnbach, and this is Five Things That Make Life Better. My guest this week is Casey Schwartz, a young writer who has dealt with her own addiction to Adderall in a book called Attention, A Love Story. Her addiction was really also to concentrating, to focus, which you got on that drug. And she talks about how her generation's answer to everything is drugs or pills, about the many distractions we have in life, the beeping of the phones and the gadgets. And she even discusses Me Too. But before we get to her, I wanted to talk about what I was thinking this week, and that is the conversation. I will call it simply the conversation. And you know the one I mean. Have you gotten the vaccine yet? When are you getting the vaccine? Which one are you getting? What have you heard about Moderna versus Pfizer versus Johnson & Johnson? What website are you going to? What time did you get on the website? You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Will you feel sick after your second one? How did you feel after the second one? When do you think we'll be able to do things again? And on and on and on. This conversation is happening with everyone I speak to. At some point, you know, it's the elephant in the room, I guess. And perhaps it's boring Perhaps it's oppressive that it's this. It's maybe this and not the hearings in Washington. It's this and maybe not how your business is, how you're feeling emotionally, how your kids are doing. But you know what? In a way, this conversation has to happen because this vaccine is the key to the return to life, not as we knew it, but as normal can be. There's an expression among certain people called the, and it's supposed to be kind of a wry term, called the organ concert, which is, how are you doing? Well, my back hurts and I've had these migraines. You know, it's not always fascinating to complain about your health to other people. Complaining, as I've told some people, doesn't make you feel better. (laughs) My mother thinks to the contrary, it does. But the conversation is essential to seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. And I know some young people are disturbed by it, but I think we'll be having the conversation until everyone is vaccinated or we have, you know, a herd immunity of significance. And I don't know about you, but I'm planning to wear a mask for at least another year. That's why I'm investing in my mask couture. I have masks for every occasion, dress up ones and not dress up ones and politically correct ones. But I don't want to get ahead of myself because here are my five things that make my life better. Number one is my new air gummy mask. That's right. It sounds like origami and it looks a little origami-ish. It's called Airgami. And the way I discovered it is because a brilliant classmate of mine invented it. It's called actually a respirator. It's won a million awards. It fits you better than a surgical mask. It fits better than even some Air 95. And it it's equally as efficient as an N95 because of the way it fits. You can breathe better through it because it's lighter weight. And you can wear earrings with it because it doesn't cover as much of your face. It's quite comfortable. I couldn't be more excited about it. It's called Airgami, and the link is on my website at lisabernbach.com. Number two, 
Spelling Bee Twitter. Most of you who've been with this show for a while know that I am very, very intrigued. Okay, I'm obsessed by a little word game called The Spelling Bee, which is part of the New York Times online game community. And you get seven letters and you have to use certain ones to form words. And suddenly, one can have a very satisfying morning looking for your words and fetching on Spelling Bee Twitter. What I mean by that is there are a number of people on Twitter who like to complain about it too. Oh my God, it's so much fun. And today, a very distinguished person referred to me as Dr. Birnbach because of my feelings of proprietary ownership of the spelling bee, which I do not own in any way, shape, or form. Anyway, it's also a reminder of how fun Twitter can be when you're not managing your fears over a certain unhinged president. So Spelling Bee Twitter is excellent. If you play Spelling Bee, I suggest you start tweeting about it and you'll find us. We'll all head over to you. Number three, personalized stationery. Well, you all know that I'm a writer and a letter writer, but it's one thing to write on a card you bought in a store. It's another thing to write on beautifully engraved stationery that happens to have your own name on it. I just received a set from Terrapin Stationers, and oh, it just elevates everything I want to say. Now, I want to discuss or just introduce the subject of crossing your name out because you're writing a note to someone you know very well, but that looks ugly. Why slash out your name when you've paid money to have it engraved? I know it's a thing that close friends do, and probably Emily Post talked about it once upon a time. I do not cross out my name. So if you get a letter from me and it has my full name engraved and it's not crossed out, it doesn't mean I don't love you. It just means I love my paper. Number four, the big hair parting controversy. Okay, this is when I start to dislike younger people because they have made boomer women feel badly if we part our hair in the center. Oh, what? That belongs to you? You decided that's yours? No, honey. Uh uh-uh. uh. That's not how it works. I'm going to part my hair wherever I want on the side, in the center, and I'm not going to ask for permission. I may not wear elephant bells again. I may not wear a micro mini skirt, but I will part my hair in the center if I feel like it. Thank you. And number five, Merrick Garland. I really do hope he will become our next attorney general. We haven't had a proper attorney general since Loretta Lynch in 2017. Mr. Garland, who should have been by all rights, by what is proper, he should have been on the Supreme Court and he was denied that opportunity. He was denied an opportunity for a hearing because of Mitch McConnell and his bullying. He should be the next Attorney General of the United States. He should run the Department of Justice. We would be lucky to have him, and I hope we deserve him, and he is approved. Coming up, Casey Schwartz, so don't go away. been reading Casey Schwartz's articles here and there. Very interested in someone with a very strong point of view who's quite young. 
And she has written a book called Attention, A Love Story. And it's the perfect book for now because we're all having issues. Do we pay attention to what's happening in this pandemic, in the COVID? Do we pay attention to ourselves, to other people? And what about our concentration? Aha! Casey Schwartz was introduced to Adderall her first semester at Brown University. This is a story I've heard from other people at Brown. Welcome, Casey. Let's talk about that. Hi, Lisa. Thank you. My daughter, Exhibit C, told me the same thing, that one night, freshman year, when she had a paper to do and her friends were going out, she said, I can't go. I have a paper. And a friend said, here's an Adderall and take it later and you can come out with us. And apparently this is not endemic to Brown, but it is endemic to your generation and younger who take pills for everything. Oh, it's definitely not specific to Brown. I mean, it's everywhere. And my college age friends, one recently told me it's actually easier to get an Adderall than a Tic Tac at her dorm in Middlebury. Oh, wow. Which has sort of stuck with me. But when I got to Brown, it was still new. Adderall had only been on the market for four years, and it was Mm -hmm. still unfamiliar. And I just remember so vividly my old friend, you know, I went to her, I was desperate. I had this paper due the next day. And she said, take this, I can't stand it. It makes me want to do cartwheels down the hall all night. And that was this big seduction because I'm the kind of person who loves the idea of wanting to do cartwheels down the hall all night. And it felt like such a a key in the lock, Mm -hmm. sort of the missing ingredient I hadn't even known I'd had been missing. And that was sort of where it began. And you write very movingly, really, of how the effect of Adderall to take you into a text that you were studying or to focus you the way it did was like a, not like a miracle, maybe it was a miracle, but like magic, right? It definitely felt miraculous. I mean, One of my most powerful, vivid memories from Brown was sitting in just the farthest corner of the stacks in the library reading Kant and this dense text that I think I would have found so intimidating if I hadn't had this kind of crutch. But on Adderall, it was like the very act of paying attention was infused with pleasure. Mm. such an intense pleasure that it almost was more pleasurable than normal college kid things like hanging out with your friends. Wow. Um, Yeah. And I mean, especially in the first, let's say, year or two or three of using it, it had this incredible euphoric focus associated with it. Casey, what happened when it was wear off? Was that an unpleasant aspect to it? Yeah, I think looking back, I wasn't even savvy enough about drugs and the brain to even understand that, yes, when you go up, you have to come down. And I probably was super irritable and sort of struggling with a lot of like sort of labile moods that were probably pretty chemical without even understanding that. And then, you know, by senior year, it had kind of really crossed a line and gotten a little out of control. And I wound up during a snowstorm in the emergency room um, in the Providence Hospital because mm-hmm. I'd had this, like, I had, had barely slept that week. And I, it was finals week. And I was working on this Russian history paper. And I'd taken too much Adderall. And I was having a panic attack. And I thought, I sort of looked up and, and it was like the room was sort of, it was like wavy, it was sort of being in another dimension. 
And I had no idea what was Mm. going on. I truly thought I was dying. And of course, even that episode did not stop the Adderall. There was an article years ago about Adderall in The New Yorker in which I learned that the Chinese government makes certain people take it. I forget. This is a very vague memory, but that there are governments that believe that people are so much more productive and focused. And I think pilots, maybe Chinese pilots. Yeah, well, the American uh, military used to use like a precursor to Adderall during World right. War II because it makes you, so, I mean, you don't need to sleep. I mean, you're sort of strung out, but you're awake, but you're so hyper vigilant. Right. And um, so, I mean, it was probably really useful for pilots. And it's probably really useful in general. A friend of mine says, no woman who's finished a novel in the last six years hasn't done it on Adderall. (laughs) I don't know. I I I don't know. feelings about that because what I think is that it can be useful, but it can also give you this totally distorted kind of like emotional life. So if you're not, I mean, particularly for a fiction writer, and you're you're really mining the depths of your psyche and putting it on the page, I, I could imagine that Adderall would actually wind up being a much bigger obstacle than it would be a help. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Now, the book is very interesting because it starts with your own experiences, starting to take this drug, loving the drug as you say, sort of getting into trouble with the drug and having to wean yourself off it. Mm -hmm. But you also interview all kinds of interesting doctors and scientists who are engaged in brain science and gurus that you got to hang out with in Vancouver. That guy, Dr. Dante Ante. Yeah. Yeah. He's, He's really interesting. Just tell me how the structure of the book came to be, because it's your experience with the drug. Then it's the sort of investigative reporting, and then you go into your father's situation. Yeah. Um, Right. And, you know, I didn't expect that. Right. And I think probably a lot of people wouldn't. Let me just backtrack and say your dad is Jonathan Schwartz. He of the Velvet Voice, who is kind of the authority on the American songbook and used to have a regular show all weekend on WNYC and NPR until Me Too. He was Me Too'd. He was Me Too'd. He was Me Too'd in 2017. Well, just to to back up a sec, I mean, the book sort of you know, I started writing it in 2016. It was obvious to me that attention was the subject I was sort of obsessed with mm-hmm. and probably always had been in a way. That's what made me so vulnerable to a drug like Adderall that promises attention. But I didn't want it just to be about Adderall. I really wanted to try and capture what we're all going through with our attention as we face this technological onslaught, just the way that our lives feel online. So it starts with Adderall, but sort of goes from there. And the reason I wanted to include what happened to my dad, which happened while I was writing the book, was that the experience took on a life of its own online so rapidly. And I think until you're living something like that from the inside, until it's happening to you or to your family member, it's hard to imagine how information just overtakes reality. Well, look at all the people who think that Donald Trump is still president. Well, exactly. I mean, if you say it enough, it's gospel in this moment in 2021. I 
And what was so hard to take about what happened to my dad was that it was such an ambiguous situation and we actually never really got the story. But within, I think it was an hour, it was sort of like Twitter had delivered the verdict because, you know, as soon as someone hears, oh, there's some thought that X person did Y, it's almost over for that person. No, it's interesting, too, is you went to college when the or came of age as sexual harassment was becoming a more, unfortunately, a more commonly reported crime or problem. And based on where you come from and who you are, obviously, you probably took the women's side most of the time. Absolutely. And here's your father who's accused, and you have to take your sympathies and your, it it changes the whole scenario, doesn't it? Yeah, you're so right, Lisa. It really does, because I think Me Too has been so incredibly valuable, and it's been so important. It's been so necessary, and thank God. Right. But I think it's complicated when you know that, oh, he hasn't even been told really what he's done. Right, right. So there's no chance. It's like the guy on the other side of the uh, mattress girl, as she was called, at Columbia. Remember? Yes, yes. And I read his version of it, and it was very credible. Yeah. And there's so much misinterpretation of signs and nuance and gestures. And it's true that nobody was told why Jonathan Schwartz was canned, except that he was canned alongside Leonard Lopate. It was as if they wanted to clean house. And maybe your dad was collateral damage. Who knows? I don't know. And I feel like I can't even really comment because, you know, I wasn't there. And so, you know, I wasn't at WNYC. Um, I just know it from the family's perspective. And, Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's so it's sort of strange even to be talking to you about this, because when I set out to write a book about attention, I definitely did not think or intend or want to be speaking out about my dad being me too. This was quite the plot twist. I wrote about it because I felt compelled to try to convey like what that experience is actually like for those who live through it and the role that the internet plays in spreading that information and hijacking our attention. Well, let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about how the internet or even writing on a computer has been altered by the experience that while you're writing in your Word document, you know that on the same screen is a flurry of texts, emails, videos, TikToks. I mean, speaking of attention, hasn't the internet absolutely destroyed our long attention spans? Yeah, and I mean, I feel like it's almost a cliche at this point to even say it. But I know the way that I pay attention has drastically changed in the last decade. And I know that- Well, you have a baby too, so- That's true. Yeah. How old is your baby? He's he's about to be 14 months. But, you know, don't you find that in some ways having a baby helps your attention? Because it's sort of like, if I know I have two hours to work, I am using those two hours. Right. You know, those two hours are now precious and sacrosanct, and I'm going to wring every second out of them. Yes, yes. I felt that way. I felt that way with babies and with children. And it does help you organize your day for sure, that sense of time. But, you know, in the last year or 11 months, time has become very weird. And I can't tell you how many friends I have who say they can't get through a book now. 
that's not the case for me. I read a lot, but a lot of people are having trouble. Yeah. I mean, they're, they shouldn't reach for an Adderall, but what do the experts say and what do you say? From all those I've spoken to, I mean, we're in a situation of chronic trauma and stress from the pandemic, mm -hmm. and that's not good for the brain, you know? Um, obviously. And I think it's totally understandable if people just feel jumpy and fried and frazzled and can't find that kind of serenity that you need in a certain way when mm -hmm. you're really going to be absorbed in a book. You know, we're sort of in totally. this, like fight and flight mode right now. Yeah, I think you describe it well. I feel like reading when you're really absorbed in a book, you're in that same flow experience that you get when you're writing well. You just yeah. know it you're gone. You're so into it. Yes. Which is, you know, one of the thrills of reading. I mean, isn't it also sort of why we write, you know, because we had a hundred percent. We as kids, we found that feeling and we thought, what is this amazing magical object? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I wrote a note. I wrote some notes in the book and I wanted to ask you about attention historians. There's really such a thing right? Oh, yes. Let's talk about that. That's as specific a job title as I have ever heard in my life. And actually, do I know anyone who's strictly an attention historian? I know I, I quote from the fascinating and extremely erudite Jonathan Crary, who is a right. professor at Columbia. And one of his books was important for me as I was researching this book. And he sort of traces a change in attention to the end of the 19th century, which is when, first of all, a lot more people were working in factories and they were required to be like constantly vigilant and switching their attention sort of on an assembly line. And that was a big change. Right. And also that's sort of when movies started. And he thinks that cinema had a big impact on our experience of attention. And it's also when, I mean, and it's not a coincidence that people like William James and other scientists and philosophers started thinking really deeply about attention. Like it had never been like the main course for scientists before. And then mm -hmm. William James came along and sort of elevated it to this topic with real grandeur to it. Because for William James, attention was the means by which we fashion a meaningful life. You know, it's sort of like you are what you pay attention to that's your life. Mm -hmm. And he is the philosopher king of the subject. And I think it's not at all a coincidence that he turned his attention to attention in the era that he did. Right. And colleagues of his did too. During the beginning of the industrial age. Exactly. And uh, the other thing that is very interesting, as a journalist, I was given some very good advice by an editor, which is sometimes attention looks like affection. And it's true that just by listening to someone, which we don't do very well anymore, and reflecting on what they say is a compliment. So it's, true. And it sometimes is misinterpreted even. Now, one of the most powerful quotes that I included in this book, powerful for me, was, you know, the brilliant Simone Weil, who said, attention is the purest form of generosity. And it's like, I was thinking so much about when I met my husband, and we just started dating. And, you know, I would sit at the dinner table, and I would just listen to him so entirely and effortlessly. I mean, there's so much about love and attention that are so intertwined. 
that, you know, mm-hmm. when you just when you're just falling in love with someone, you know, every single thing they say is so fascinating to you and you just soak it up. And you can't get enough. You can't possibly you cannot get, enough. get enough. No. And of course, all your oxytocin and dopamine, it's all just flowing like crazy. Was it hard for you to write so personally for publication? No, I love writing personally, but I knew that the subject of Me Too is so tricky and fraught. And I was worried about taking it on because, again, I I really didn't set out to be a spokesperson on this subject, you know? Mm -hmm. And that was very frightening and still is. Ah, So, yeah. Have you gotten pushback from that? Uh, No, actually, I haven't. Oh. So, that's um, good. I think in part because just as the book came out, the pandemic started (laughs) and it was like, who even cared because (laughs) we're entering an international catastrophe, you know? I really love writing personally. I find that it just sort of pours out. And are you working on a new book? I'm just developing one, but it's not it's not personal at all. It's um historic. It's it's set in nineteen forty five. Ah. Well, that's research is something you can do while that baby is asleep. <laughs> exactly. But it's time for your five things. And you have six things, and that is cool with me. You know who else brought six things was Daphne Merkin. That's funny. You writers. (laughs) And actually, I was thinking, am I even going to be able to come up with five things? Well, that's what everybody thinks. And then they find out that they can. And then they find out they enjoyed having to think about it. It's a kind of fun exercise. By the way, if you do it once, it's fun. If you do it every single damn week. (laughs) (laughs) I know that actually really is impressive, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you very Um, much. But no, okay, so five things. I've been loving tacos. Tacos are the most cheerful food item, aren't they? They are so cheerful. They are cheerful. I think one, because they're messy and you can be messy. And two, because of the sound of the word. Exactly. I mean, you can't be depressed when a taco arrives. No, I never thought of that before. Um, do you have do you have a good place for delivery tacos? We or do you make have them? an incredible place. It's called Alta Calidad in Prospect Heights. Highly recommend. You can't Excellent. go wrong from there. Uh-huh. Um all right, so that's number one. Number two is watching my now one year old baby take his first steps a couple weeks ago. Oh, that is big. Except now he's kind of on strike and he doesn't want to keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I have a, uh, well, my son has a son. I think that makes me, I don't know, whatever. And he sometimes, he's 21 months, and sometimes he thinks it's funny to crawl now. <laughs> That's his way of being funny. Right. Oh, my but, God. He's, so he's a, That he's could bad. happen. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. I, I don't mind because I don't mind delaying having to run after him. Yeah, that's right. Easier to manage when they're inert. exactly all right let's see what was number three it was my weighted blanket okay please tell me that they really are worth what everybody says they are i think you order one as soon as we hang up (gasps) 20 pound weighted 20 pounds and what uh, seriously what does it do that is so great it soothes you and you can feel it almost instantly and i also i've noticed that i have 
I feel that I sleep deeper and I have more vivid dreams when I'm under it. I don't need more vivid dreams than I already have, <laughs> seriously. But the deep sleep I could use. Yeah, I think that's a great thing to have in a pandemic. Okay, we'll talk about it afterwards. You tell me what kind you have that I'll, I'll order, send you 20 link. pounds. Okay, perfect. Okay, weighted blanket. Number four. I am married to a hilarious man. <gasps> You're Truly so lucky. I know. I know. And I know that. And it's he is just genuinely hilarious. And Aww. so, I mean, even in the depths of this COVID winter, I mean, he makes me laugh every single day. Oh, my God. You're so lucky. And Lisa, finally, we live very near to Prospect Park, which is the only mm -hmm. place we ever go. And I mean, this park, which is so magnificent, has just become the saving grace of the pandemic. I mean, first of all, we've met all our neighbors. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we're there. Our whole social life in spring, summer and fall took place in the park, of course, on beach chairs, you know, drinking with friends, shouting to them from eight feet away. From it, right. And I don't know what I would have done without Prospect Park. And isn't Prospect Park, wasn't it also designed by? By Olmsted. Olmsted, Frederick Law Olmsted, right. Yes. So it's, you know, it's gorgeous. It's magnificent. You know, it's funny, during the pandemic, in the COVID, in the quarantine, I've spent time now in Riverside Park. I grew up on the east side, so the west side is still, I'm in the process of discovery. The park is fantastic also. It's so different from Central yeah. Park, but nature is what saves us in a way, isn't it true? Oh my gosh, yeah. And we're starved for it in the city. We're um, starved for it, yep. But I mean, yep. one of the best days of this year was the day, the weekend that Biden was confirmed. Oh. Um, and sitting in Prospect Park on the Great it Lawn. It was 60 degrees that day 60, or 65. It was, like, no, it, was, it was every 15 minutes, there was this spontaneous applause on the Great Lawn of Prospect Park, which is actually called the Long Meadow. And it was like everyone there just started clapping. And it was such a communal state of euphoria and bliss. I'll never forget it. It was like also, as I said, very cornily, because I'm a boomer, it was like nature wanted Biden. And it was, completely. It was almost, it was a glorious weekend. And it enabled us to all be in a community because wherever you were in New York City, people were cheering. They were honking their horns in a way that you knew it was. It was unforgettable. Ding dong, the witch is dead, right? It was the ultimate release, wasn't it? It was perfect. And I savored it too. Every moment I could that weekend. Casey Schwartz, we're going to be friends when this COVID is <laughs> oh, over. I think we will, Lisa. I think we will. Well, thank you so much thank you for, for joining me. me. Oh, it was a pleasure. My guest today has been Casey Schwartz, author of Attention, a Love Story, published by Pantheon. You can follow Casey on Twitter at Casey Schwartz, Instagram at Casey Schwartzy, or on Facebook at Casey.Schwartz161. Her website is CaseySchwartz.com. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. We are produced in New York City by TheFieldTV.com. My team is Kevin Watkins, engineer, Michael Port, Espresso Rucci, Sam Haft, and Boko Haft. 
Everything that we talked about today, you can see on my website at lisabernbach.com. And my closing words today, as they are every week, wear a mask and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers. <laughs>